there, I'm Maud Garrett. Welcome to the Millions Podcast by Harrison AI, the cutting edge med tech company that's on a mission to urgently scale global healthcare capacity using AI automation to elevate the care clinicians can provide. Over the course of the series, we're sitting down with leading engineers, data scientists, and innovators at some of the world's most iconic companies to talk about how technology, and specifically AI, is changing the world around us. Before we dive into the latest episode, take a listen to this. I love working on wicked hard problems with wicked smart people, but for me, it's got to be close to a real customer problem and it's got to be shippable. I don't play well in theoretical anymore. I want to build it and get it out there and see what people think. That was Kendra Vant, Executive General Manager of Data at Zero. Now, with her role at Zero in mind, this episode dives deep into the point where artificial intelligence meets small business. But it also goes much broader into topics like where generative AI is going, how LLMs are a reflection of the cultures they're built in, and the concept of fairness in the context of AI. A key theme of the conversation is, as our host, the renowned futurist and broadcaster, Mark Pesci puts it, how do we ride the horse without letting it run away with us? Okay, let's get into the discussion. While companies like Harrison AI have been building AI tools for years, Mark starts by talking about the rapid mass adoption of AI in more recent times. Just a year ago, it was basically a toy. And now all the big boys, Google and Microsoft and Meta, they're all piling in. And before long, all of the big and medium-sized businesses will have their own AI tools, their own AI strategies. And we need to ask, what about small business? Are they going to be underserved as they have been with the web? Kendra Vant is possibly the best person to answer this question. Kendra, welcome to Millions. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's really a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background and how an MIT PhD in physics became such a data nerd. I don't think that one's uncommon, but um, yeah, let me jump in the Wayback Machine for a moment. Well, actually, no, let me start with today. So I'm a proud dual citizen of Australia and New Zealand. So for those accent nerds out there, you can pick both. I'm recently became the mother of three young adults who've all flown the nest and are out there forging their own ways in the world. And that is both liberating and terrifying. So it's a, a new era for me. So that's me today. But me way back in the days of MIT, I did spend 11 years in academia, which seems like an it seems like a lifetime now and a lifetime ago. And I was an experimental physicist. So I have a doctorate in physics from MIT studying atomic physics, actually. So firing lasers at super, super cold hydrogen atoms, trying to figure out extremely precise measurement. I had a blast at MIT. Um, I know you've been there as well, Mark. It's a really, really interesting microcosm. Um, and we might touch on that towards the end. But I had a lovely time there. But while I adore science, and I always will, it turns out that I'm really more of an engineer at heart. Mm. And what I mean by that is I love building things. And I really, really get a kick out of getting those things out into the world so that real people can use them. So... That's, that's really the, the, the narrative thread of my career. I, I want to build things. I've worked in big companies. I've worked in quite little companies. I've had the absolute privilege of living and working in four different countries, and I'm super keen to add more countries to that list. Lots of time working, and maybe this is something about what I find super fascinating, lots of time working with financial transaction data. Mm. There's just so much to learn about the human condition 
deeply inside the financial transaction data of a country. That has a really special place in my heart, like fintech is always going to be fascinating to me. But I've worked in telcos, I've worked in airlines. There's been a lot of structured data. And then, you know, with great sort of, I'm really happy about the fact there's been a lot of natural language data. Mm -hmm. So particularly when I went to seek, it really got into natural language. But I think it all does distill down to, I love working on wicked hard problems with wicked smart people. But for me, it's got to be close to a real customer problem and it's got to be shippable. I don't play well in theoretical anymore. I want to build it and get it out there and see what people think. <laughs> so <laughs> that must be then why you have worn so many hats. You know, you've been a data scientist, you've been in predictive analytics, you've done machine learning and now artificial intelligence. All of these are becoming one big, interesting hairball now. What has the confluence of those areas taught you? It's a great question. And I think that one thing that it's taught me is that humans really suck at naming things. <laughs> because exactly to your point, we, we, we think that those are different things. And we hang on to the idea that they are different things for quite a long time. But the edges of those spaces bleed into each other. And they morph and they change. And one cannot really any longer be distinctly drawn around separate from another. And I see it all the time in org design in companies mm. where we hang on to an org design with the names of the things that made sense and were relevant maybe five years ago. And you look at it and you're like, I think I can see the source of some of your tension there, Pete. Those things are no longer distinct. One reason I think that people like myself with experimental science training really thrive in this space is because a lot of those folks, people who really committed some time to studying some kind of esoteric branch of science, they're really comfortable with ambiguity, mm. but they constantly strive to remove it. And it's one difference I see between people who love the space of AI, machine learning, data science, call it what you will, because all the labels work, and people who can't stand it, particularly with engineers. And it's actually how comfortable are you with the fact that the goal keeps changing and you can't wake up the next morning and go, oh, actually we're working on the wrong thing. And that level of are you comfortable with the goalposts changing seems to make a big difference to how comfortable you are working in the space. Oh, that's really interesting. And one of the things I'm also starting to hear from people who are working in the bleeding edge of the field, and we'll cover this a little bit more further in, is that, in fact, a lot of these systems are themselves naturally imperfect. They're naturally ambiguous. They're naturally good at giving you not exactly the answer you asked for. You are so spot on. And I was actually thinking about this today with more and more discussion coming out about how generative AI, which is the next big, you know, new big thing, is going to change education. And, you know, there's a lot of naysaying out there around it's going to be impossible to keep it out of the classroom and all the rest of it. And I thought some really interesting educators were saying, well, no, what it's going to help discriminate between is the regurgitation of content and critical thinking skill. And I was like, well, isn't that fascinating? Because critical thinking skill is something that is, I think, going to remain uniquely human for quite a long time, but is something that could be really usefully strengthened across our societies and our education systems. And there was a beautiful example that I think was posted to Reddit when the term, the school term began, university in America in February, was a history professor going, yeah, you're not going to go to ChatGPT for your answers. Here, I've asked ChatGPT about the English Civil War, and here's what it had to say. Take it and fix it. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> because, because, Smart be, man. <laughs> because, exactly. Because that forces them to actually dive in there. And chat GPT will mix, as we know, fact with fiction very seamlessly. Yes. So it builds that critical. All right. Tell us a little bit about Zero. I think a lot of people in Australia and New Zealand will be familiar with the name, but maybe not with the scope of your business. Yes, for sure. So, yeah, Zero with an X, everyone, yeah. and not Xerox. For me, if I try to explain it, I guess, to the to the average person I run into in a coffee shop, well, actually, no, that's a bad analogy because the average person you run into a coffee shop in Australia does know what it is. But Zero, what I would love for people to think about it is that it gives the small business the back office of a big business. So a small business, a really little one, and there are so many of them, the lifeblood of Australia, they're unlikely to have a CSO, chief security officer, a CFO, a CDO. They can't have a dedicated person for those things. But thoughtful software that is really, really well designed by professionals who understand all of those different functions and can automate as much of that toil away from the small business owner as possible can be that back office that's those supporting functions for a small business. Because I don't know about you, but the small businesses I meet, except for the ones who are accountants and bookkeepers, they didn't go into business through their books. So what they want is something that does that and all of the other really important but somewhat tedious back office tasks, they want something that helps them do that very, very well and only takes the, the, the minimum amount of time that it should really take a human. And I mean, I retain an accountant for this because I work for myself and I probably could nestle in with a tool, but for me, because it's only me, actually makes more sense for me to have a person. But he's also getting older. And at some point he will retire, probably when he hits 90 or 95. And, and at that point, I, I will look, you know, it doesn't make sense for me to start to automate this workflow. But again, if you're in a business that where it's more than just one person, that becomes a real interesting consideration. And that these tools have evolved as much as they have tells us that not just that there's a need, but that it changes the scope of what a small business can do for itself. Absolutely, because remember that you very rapidly discover if you employ people, yeah. you now have your own accounts to do, but you also have payroll. Yeah. You also have superannuation. Yeah. You also have a myriad of things with a myriad of their own calendars and importances yeah. that are critical to running a small business, but are nothing to do with being a florist or being a cafe. And so one of the things that I think is magic about a cloud platform like Zero with millions of customers is we can do exactly what the Spotify and the Netflixes do for your leisure time. We can crowdsource the wisdom of crowds. We have millions of people completing billions of transactions around the world. Machines are great at learning those patterns. And then we can come to you and say, oh, you seem to be trying to reconcile your bank account. You've spelt, this is an Australian-centric example, I apologize, but you've spelt bonings. I don't think you mean bonings. I think you mean bunnings. Because when most people buy Lumber, they actually code it to a contact called Bunnings. Would you like to code it to a contact called Bunnings? And would you like your general ledger code to be building lumber supplies? And that magic of being able to take what millions of people have done before you and then suggest to the human being that, hey, I think this is actually what you probably would like to use. That is what really sets the cloud accounting platforms apart. 
you, you've really just opened this up for us because you're collecting a huge amount of data. And we know that that is a necessary precondition for most machine learning to happen. And now you've talked about a specific example of AI support. But how do you think about this in zero, about the relationship between, again, all of that crowdsourced data and your ability to be able to facilitate and ease that is really what your customers are looking for? So... Well, the way that we approach deciding where we can utilize AI within our product space, if that makes sense, where is it going to give our customers the most bang for the buck? Is we say, well, what can what can computers do really, really well? And what can they remove that humans don't enjoy so much? And for us, those, are, those fall into two big buckets. We believe that with that wisdom of crowds, with that incredible source of data and the way that machines can spot patterns, we can remove toil. So that's one thing, is what 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 many, many tasks get done millions of times a day, take a few seconds for the human being to make the decision, those ones are ripe for automation with machine learning. So that's our one, one big bucket. And accounting and small business uh, bookkeeping is rich in automatable tasks. And the other one is delight those folk with insight. Learn that they do this on this day and this on this day and this on this day. Hey, you probably want to take this task. Or really importantly, I don't think you're going to make payroll next week unless this invoice, which doesn't usually get paid on time, gets paid on time. So it's those sorts of things where the, where the machines excel in learning concrete tasks and learning from the patterns of data that they can then augment the human and say, hey, I know you're busy. I know you're tired. I know this is not your favorite topic. I think you mean this. Yeah. Would you like to confirm that we've got that right and then speed you on your day so you can go and do the rest of your life? The first example I saw of how all of this works together, I spent a lot of time, like you, I'm fascinated by financial transactions. And I spent a lot of time working with the World Bank around some of the projects for financial inclusion in the developing world. And of course, we have mobile payment systems in much of the world. One, The most famous one is called M-Pesa. And it's used in Kenya, and it's become the prototype for a lot of these systems. And after the systems were used for a couple of years, people realized that the data that all of these people were generating by just paying for things could actually be put to work. And one very bright set of folks, graduates of Harvard Business School, had figured out that they could do analysis of a small business and figure out what its cash flow was. And then they could pre-approve a line of credit at the bank so they would be able to make payroll. And all. so... It just felt, and when they explained this to me, I was like, wow, we don't even do that in Australia yet, right? It was something that was, it was new and exciting. And it was because they could stick their finger in the data and learn from that. Is, are we just at the beginning of being able to do that? Well, because that's how it feels. I think for sure, we are absolutely at the beginning of being able to do that. And generative AI has probably just opened up another massive door in that space. And the reason I think that is because of the accessibility that it gives people. Mm. So it gives it gives many more folk the ability to ask structured questions of data and actually start to be able to tease through those things and understand them. But in the small business accounting space, small business space in general, I think we've been held back a long time because small businesses are incredibly diverse. Yeah. I've worked in retail finance, and we'd like to think we're all special little snowflakes, but really, the average retail Australian is fairly categorizable, and that's been done for a really, really long time. I have your credit card statements. I can fairly accurately predict your spending patterns. 
is much harder to do for a small business, particularly a small business that multi-banks or a small business that is using a personal credit card for business and personal transactions. So the complexity of small business has always been the diversity of small business and the fact that while there are hundreds of thousands of them, there aren't, like there are retail consumers, tens of millions of them. And I think that's why this space is still untapped, as untapped as, as it is, considering how extremely rich in data it is and how incredibly rich it is in tasks that humans are not particularly and don't particularly enjoy and computers are really, really good at. And I know that when I talk to a lot of bookkeepers and accountants, they're also really excited about this space. They don't see it as removing yeah. their jobs. They see it as taking away from them a lot of the toil that is an unavoidable part of their job today and giving them more time to be to do what they actually went into accounting and booking to do, which is provide business advice. So it feels like a massive win-win. Wow. Okay. So really then, if we are only at the beginning stages of this, what we can see, particularly if we look at generative AIs, we can also see that we are very much early days of this. We can see Canva integrating generative AI tools within its product suite. In fact, basically everywhere they think it could be useful, they're, they're using it. Microsoft is throwing ChatGPT via Bing into pretty much everything that it can stick it into. And all of this is to help streamline workflow, get you to your presentation faster, get you to your Excel spreadsheet faster or to your Outlook or whatever it is. Given that it is, there are now a lot more touch points that are obviously AI, like when you're making a suggestion to a small business, they may or may not know that it, there is an AI powering it, right? They know that it's a recommendation. These are more explicitly like, oh, there's a machine thinking behind the scenes and I've asked it something and it's answering. How do you think that's going to start to shape our perceptions of AI and the role within the workforce. You've just mentioned that accountants are actually looking for the liberation that the tools will bring. But it doesn't feel like everyone else is really looking forward to that. I think it's a very polarizing subject. And unfortunately, for those who follow the media, I think that it's become super polarizing because of the generative AI six-month pause, which, you know, for those who didn't see it, it was a whole bunch of luminous, well, uh, influential people in the space uh, jumping on a bandwagon that says that all of research should be paused for six months. And I think I come down the side on the side of Emily Bender and Andrew Ng here, which is, sure, maybe we'll accidentally build Terminator. But it seems hellishly unlikely. <laughs> and what it feels like at the moment is that we're being carried away by thinking about the existential crisis problems, which are very unlikely and a long way off. And we're ignoring the problems that are actually there today, which is, how do we make sure that we build AI tools like generative AI that are representative, that can be accessed with equity, and that pay respect to personal property? So that's that's the conversation I'd like to see being had, in, in particularly in the Australian and New Zealand media, is let's back off a little bit from worrying that the AI is going to take over the world and start wondering about how we make sure that the incredible power of the new developments that we've seen over the last two to three months be the force for good that they can be and actually help a lot of people do a lot of things better rather than worrying too much about, um, you know, cataclysmic world-destroying AI. Hello there, me again. Just a quick interruption to say uh, what she said. 
Using AI as a force for good is exactly what Harrison AI are about. They're creating AI tools that help address the profound healthcare inequality and capacity issues humanity is facing. So why is this such a big deal? Well, there's a huge shortage of pathologists and radiologists globally. In some countries, there's only one pathologist for every million people. So Harrison AI is on a mission to urgently scale global healthcare capacity using AI automation as a second set of eyes that elevates the care clinicians can provide. Their goal is to improve the standard of care for millions of patients worldwide. Now, if that's something that interests you, you should definitely follow Harrison AI on LinkedIn. Anyway, back to Mark. It does feel like there's a space for being able to walk and chew gum around this, which is to not downplay either of them. Universal Media Group, which owns one third of all of the music copyrights on earth, uh, sent a cease and desist to both Spotify and Apple, who have the largest streaming services, to say the content of our music cannot be used to train artificial intelligence because we already know that there are generative AIs that can create effectively pop music by listening to lots and lots of pop. So it's being, but it's being trained on material under copyright. So when you talk about respecting property rights, right, this is not something that is at all theoretical. We know that people can turn out images from Getty Images, which again, the largest image catalog in the world by setting the right prompts into Dolly and to stable diffusion. So there is all of that going on. But there isn't just one thing happening here because there are people, I think a lot of people who are genuinely less sanguine than the accountants are because they see their jobs as primarily pushing paper around, filling out forms, correcting things. And they don't know for themselves what's left for them when these tools hit their disciplines. How do we start to reframe that? What was the thought process that, for instance, the accountants went through that actually did make them quite calm about this? I think one reason for that is that accountants, by and large, are numbers people. Mm. So that gives them perhaps a little more of a leg up in being comfortable with if you stop and think about it, a thing that crunches numbers. So I think that's one reason is this that they that by and large, I hate to use stereotypes, but we all do. Accountants and bookkeepers do tend to have quite analytical approaches to things and you they're hope. really comfortable thinking in analytical ways. You, you would hope if they were your bookkeeper, you'd kind of hope that. And I know mine certainly is. Um, look, I think that it's unrealistic of us to say that people shouldn't be worried yeah. about AI. But I kind of, again, go with some of the prominent, uh, you know, thinkers around the world have been saying people were worried about the advent of the printing press. Yes. It didn't stop the printing press being rolled out. The, the slight difference in analogy that I must say, I think about a lot and I don't have an answer for is the speed of rollout. Yeah. It took decades or probably even centuries for the printing press to roll out across the world. Generative AI is rolling out in, in, in days, if not weeks. Yeah. The other one that really, really interests me is the thing. I, think of, I speak only English. Poor me. I'm, a, you know, I'm monoglot. So I'm not quite aware, as viscerally as I know many of my colleagues are, of how English-centric uh, the generative AI tools that we have are today. Yeah. And is that going to lead to a major contraction of the diversity of language? And therefore, my understanding psychologically is the diversity of thought that we have around the world. Well, where, we want to think about those things, right? Let's think about those things now, not about whether the thing's going to create, you know, a nuclear arsenal in the sky and blow us all up. Right. And we already know that 
in the People's Republic of China, Baidu and Tencent are already building their own models that are going to be trained in Chinese content. We know that the Indian Institute of Technology, again, is building one in Hindi. And so we actually do see this as being a national project for precisely the reasons, right? You, it is very hard for English monoglots, and I'm not quite a monoglot, but close enough to see when things are only presented in English, because that is the water the fish is swimming in, right? And yet it is so true. It is going to be interesting as the, the large language-based countries, I guess, pick up their own models. One note I did see on that, sort of the same as yourself, was though that uh, the People's Republic of China have said that they will have uh, state censorship. Yeah. Oh, yes. So all the models and all of the developments have to be passed through a centralised committee that signs them off. And that's a very interesting challenge because in countries where we, the collective, choose not to have that oversight, we're going to move much faster. It's going to be a, a real a real melting pot, I guess, of different approaches and, and different outcomes depending on the political systems. Which makes sense because these models are reflections of the cultures, not just the data set, but the cultures that provide the data set. Talking about culture, you have this current role at Zero, but you've also worked at Seek, which is kind of the Australian, the, it was the first generation Australian tech startup that really went big, and then Deloitte International Consultancy. You have probably come on, on, across a lot of complex challenges in your career at these different firms. Can you identify one and how you sort of overcome, came it, or, or maybe finessed it? Yeah. So probably reflective of my current role, people and people change is, I reckon, the most complex challenge in business. Mm. But if we go to a technical one, because honestly, they're more interesting to talk about, people change is fascinating. It's hard work. You work through it. It's one of the most rewarding things of your career. But listening to someone else talk about people change, not so interesting. <laughs> technology change, on the other hand, trying to come up with the technology answer to a really complex problem. I was thinking about this and it really occurred to me that I think there's a huge overlay of newness on complexity mm. because where my head went was, ah, oh, yes, I really do remember a genuinely complex problem. And then I paused and thought, gosh, if I was trying to solve that today. I'm pretty sure there's four or five APIs I could call up. I could chuck my data in and it'd be done. And that made me pause and reflect on, gosh, that was a lot of hard work that could now be done very quickly. But it was done at the advent of Glove. For the you know the audience members who sort of remember the very beginnings of the large language models when we were talking about high dimensional vectors for the first time, and I was at Seek, which had the most amazing uh, data sets around the resumes of you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Australians and New Zealanders who'd applied for jobs. And what we what we worked on was trying to have a real deep understanding on a multi dimensional way of the content of those resumes the content of jobs ads so we could say, hey, we've got all these resumes of all these people looking for their dream jobs and all these ads of all of the employers looking for their dream candidate. One of the challenges is they go past really fast and if you're not looking every day, you might miss your dream job and that means that employer misses out on their perfect candidate. Surely there's a way that you can use machine learning to bring those together to alert people to a job that might be perfect for them. And we were getting into it at a time when 
we were reading the research papers coming out of the big American universities. And it was actually the big American universities back then. It was not the big uh, internet properties. And we were running into the size of the data was part of the problem. Mm. So it was right back when you genuinely did not want to kick off your run on your entire resume set because cost of compute, you would blow through your monthly budget <laughs> quite rapidly. So that was, a, that was a fascinating problem where you really saw that the cross-functional nature of your team was incredibly important because you did need to have folk who were comfortable and mathematically literate in reading the later, latest Richard Social paper and understanding multidimensional vectors and understanding how to take something like the glove model and tokenize your uh, resume set and process those resumes and come up with a matching algorithm to process both resumes and uh, job ads. But you also had to have folk with the engineering mouse who could make that happen in a finite amount of time for a finite amount of cost. And that back and forth and that complexity and one particularly interesting, really new challenge then, not a new challenge now, is actually how do you vision all of that? For those of you listeners who are software engineers, they'd be like, versioning, been there, done that. Not so much when what you're versioning is a really, really complex data pipeline, particularly not if parts of that processing pipeline are a non-trivial amount of money and time to rerun. Mm, yeah. So working, I know it sounds like a funny thing to have found so complex, but working out, and this is still not a solved problem, how to comprehensively version an entire pipeline, which includes uh persisted data assets so that you could say this model version has this data set, this data set was processed in this way and take that reproducibility of lineage right the way back to source. That's a really complex problem. So that is probably one I really reflect on when I think about a group of people who came early to a problem and really had to bring all their skills to the table to sort through it. And it feels like that problem, as you've outlined, is also going to be necessary for us to explore more in order to understand bias, because you have to be able to version data sets to understand how the assumptions you've baked into your data affect the outcomes of the data. And you know, the thing that fascinates me about any conversation about bias is, and I know this is a trite thing to say, but because it's a fa it's a very important topic, oh, yeah. but people under underestimate its complexity, because what I often get pushed into saying is, you would like a fair model. Great. First, show me a fair world. Yeah. And what I mean by that is I completely and wholeheartedly agree that measuring bias is really important. However, what am I measuring it against? Because what we found, and I still find it zero, when we are building algorithmic answers to problems, it's a very reasonable answer question to ask, but is that fair? And I have to say, and all honestly, fair compared to what? Because I very much doubt that the humans who are doing the same processes before the machines came along didn't bring their own biases <laughs> to those outcomes. So unless you can say I have a fully balanced, whatever it means, unbiased human set to measure against, I'm genuinely going to struggle to measure in any tangible, fixable way what the bias introduced by the algorithms are. I don't see that talked about much, but I do think it's a problem that people overlook at their peril. It is interesting because uh, we had uh, Batik Joshi from Canva on here and he pointed up a very similar thing when you're talking about generative AI producing biased outputs as well. You know, when you ask for a CEO, it's going to give you a white middle-aged man because guess what it got trained on in the word CEO. And so there are 
ways of thinking about it, which is that we're maybe not striving for perfection so much as we're striving for transparency. It's like, yeah, we know this model does these things. That's just the nature of this model. Be aware of it when you're using this model or this tool. There's that one. And I was reading a paper yesterday that was saying how you can prompt engineer to try to actually move around that. And it's like, great, but I'd rather a world in which a young Asian computer scientist didn't have to prompt engineer to get things that look like her coming back out of that algorithm. Oh, yeah, no, it's 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 just a it's a bottomless pit. That question, it really is, which we can go down, but perhaps we shouldn't. Well, <laughs> I mean, all of this, of course, is in the context as as we've both noted that there is an AI race happening right now, right? Yeah. And we have valid fears about security and privacy because these models are sucking up huge amounts of data. People are clearly pasting private corporate data into ChatGPT. <laughs> all of the time now. Uh, and then, of course, there's the ethical questions, both about the training model, but also about the outputs, and then about how human beings take those outputs and turn them into practices. Where do you see it on how we need to manage the balance? You know, we've talked about fairness, but balanced implementations, right? How do we ride the horse without letting it run away with us? One thing I wonder is that will help is that we all need to pause and perhaps cool down a little bit. Mm. And I'll, I'll tell you why I, I bring that up. I've found it really interesting. I'm, you know, I certainly have at the moment the honour of being regarded as an expert in AI. And so everyone, one one dinner time conversation, Kendra, explain to us about ChatGPT. What do you think? What's it going to do? How's it going to change the world? And one thing I've really noticed through those conversations is that what we're doing at the moment is we're suspending our usual levels of cynicism. I've got folks who are usually deeply commercial people talking about this, that. Now I'm like, what do you think the business model of, let's talk about ChatGPT because it's the most, what do you think the business model of ChatGPT is? If you're not paying for it, people, (laughs) you are the product. (laughs) And so I find it, I I wonder if, if we just need to pause and say, all right, this is an amazing technology and it's ama- amazing things. It's going to change a lot of stuff. But we currently have running out of AI chips. People can't regenerate them fastest. We're running out of power generation in some parts of the US. Apparently, they cannot run these models fast enough. So how has the field, AI and ML, data science, how has it changed since you started your career? I mean, clearly there are better tools and you've, you've pointed to that, but how has the field changed and its practice? You're going to make me sound and feel very old, mate, uh, because the field as a commercial field didn't, uh, did not exist when I left graduate school. Mm. So how has it changed since then? It's become commercially interesting, which has sh- which has seen enormous amounts of talent dive into it. So when I left grad school, those people who left just before me who didn't want to stay in academia went to Wall Street. Right. Three years later, instead of Wall Street, they were all going to Google. Yeah. So you saw the birth of an interesting space. You saw the birth of a commercially relevant space because AI research, of course, has been around for decades. Yes. 1950s, 1960s is sort of when people tend to say is the birth of it. Um, one thing that I think is pleasing is that uh, it's welcoming a wider range of people. Mm. So I think we have to be we have to work carefully on that because it is going to be game changing 
and we want to have a wide range of people at the table. But you have seen, I, I have seen over the past five to 10 years, as the tooling has improved, mm-hmm. would probably be the reason for it, is that it has been more welcoming to a broader range of people. Um, one, one reason I love it and one reason I think it attracts a lot of focus, it's such a young profession. I mean, if you think about how long doctors have been credentialed, you know, what is that now, centuries? <laughs> um, because data science, machine learning, AI research is such a young profession, there aren't those barriers to entry. Mm. So if you are genuinely very keen, you can reskill in the order of, you know, months to years if you are committed and you can enter the field and you can sort of forge your own path. And I think that's a fantastic space to be. It does mean that you want to be someone who's comfortable with being a lifetime learner before you dive in. Because that's one other thing I'd say about how's the field changed. It's changed out of sight. And it's going to continue to change out of sight. So if you want a job where you can turn up, use the skills you learned in undergrad and draw a paycheck until, you know, kids have left uni and you're ready to pop off in the RV, don't join this field because you have to be prepared to refresh your skill set. Given that you are very much mid-career and you may be looking at what the next exciting things are that you want to do. What are the fields that you see that are exciting you that you want to be able to focus on in the future? Oh, yeah. It's a bit like being a kid in a candy store right now, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's uh, how long have we got for this conversation? <laughs> um, so many things. So I am really, really fascinated by ethics, by the ethics of data use. I don't understand enough about ethics. It is a profession, but I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. It's coming to a crisis point because of all of these generative models built on public commons. We're seeing governments reacting in different ways. New law is being written, right? New new ideas about law are being written. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. I would love to, to dive in and swim around in that space for a while. Um, for me, though, I think on the technology side, I'm I'm most taken with with finding new problems. So I move on when I've when I've not that I've solved the problem because they're not always soluble, but when I've learned as much as I can learn, or my learning's slowing down, right? So you were kind enough to say at the beginning of the podcast I had worn many hats. Some people less kindly describe it as I have a short attention span. Um, <laughs> I really like finding new problems and working on solving those new problems. And that's the way I do it. I say, this is the new problem. Now, what do I need to know that I don't already know in order to solve that problem? So for me, that's how I look at new fields. Um, I think healthcare is at a tipping point. Uh, it, it's absolutely extraordinary. If you pick up from sort of the quantified self folk, mm-hmm. we are learning so much about how to instrument our own bodies. Uh, you know, biomarkers, um, there's inside tracker in the States, that sort of thing. There's continuous glucose monitors you can wear now, even if you're not a diabetic. I really subscribe to that idea of you wouldn't drive a car without a dashboard. Why do you run a body without a dashboard? And I think that we are at that tipping point where a personalized understanding of health is within reach. And making that personalized understanding of health a good thing for the humanity rather mm-hmm. than a bad thing, and making it equally accessible to people with uh substantial means and people without substantial means, that's amazing. Amazing change coming in that space. I'd love to be part of that. I'm also really, really interested in the impacts of climate change Mm. on how we're going to maintain a sustainable ability to have the population we have today. And that's there's a there's got to be applications of AI and machine learning 
to agriculture? How are we going to adapt our agricultural techniques fast enough to put up with the rate of climate change? There's got to be ways we can bring both our knowledge of biology and knowledge of cropping and our knowledge of AI, bring them together and really help to make tangible impacts on that massive problem of how we're going to feed the human population with rapidly changing climate. So there's so many exciting things out there. There's so many fields that are exploding and I think are really going to be able to pick up the generative AI techniques pick up you know the stuff that's still still really really interesting in reinforcement learning and bring them all in and there's going to be new fields created but as you say only mid-career so i've got decades to explore this stuff it's wonderful but let's say that you could send a note to your younger self right and uh, you know back maybe maybe just when you were graduating with that physics degree what would you tell yourself I've thought about this quite a lot, actually, partly because one of the great joys of my mid-career career is leading people and helping people, you know, lead themselves and learn about themselves. And it's really easy for me. The advice that I would give to myself at a younger age and to the younger folk around me who are starting their careers is learn everything. Mm. I've often had this conversation with folks in my team. I love having graduates, new graduates join my team. You might sometimes you see them getting a bit frustrated, they're a bit antsy, like, you know, they want to do cool stuff and that what they, they feel what they're doing at the moment is pointless. Now, I've done some boring jobs in my life. You know, I really have. I have packed jam. I have washed floors. I, you know, university, you, you did what you had to do to get through, right? And I've also since university done some roles. Let's be polite. They were challenging because of a combination of tediousness and a massive attention to detail, mm. right? So that they're boring, but not easy, if that makes sense. Um, I did a stint in manual software testing way back when for some types of software, manual software testing was the only fundamentally yep. feasible approach. Yep. It was both extremely boring and extremely, it needed an extreme attention to detail, yep. otherwise you missed things. And, you know, yeah, the software fell over, which was a terrible thing. So you have to be very careful. And just what I say to folk is nothing you learn is ever wasted. If you think you're doing something tedious, think about how you could extend your mental models and add this to your store of mental models of how to do things. There is no being bored. There is only being boring, my parents always told me. And I think if you apply that to the working world, it's really true. If you can't see what you can take from what you are currently doing, two things is true. One, you're not thinking hard enough. You should think harder and learn from what you're doing. That is what I would tell my younger self. And then my slightly older self, I'd say, but don't stay bored. Once you've learned what you can learn, get out, move on. Don't stay in one place too long. So I know those sound contradictory, but they are absolute gold to someone, you know, in there, perhaps with a little bit of imposter syndrome, perhaps with a little bit of FOMO. It's like just quieten down, learn learn, and then when there's nothing left to learn, get out and move on. Yeah, but I mean, I think that, to be generous, there's a tension between those two, which is actually exactly where you want to be. You want to be in that tension where, have I learned enough? Is it time to move? And you're never really 100% sure, but that's okay. All right, final question. We all learn from our failures. God knows I have. What did your <laughs> biggest failure teach you? It's so related to the previous conversation, actually. I mean, I think it's a funny question, right, in some ways, because failure is what you make of it. So is it is it an almost failure that you then turn into a, I, I learned and succeeded? Mm. And mine perhaps is, 
when I left graduate school, um, I'd been in there 11 years. And I realized looking back that I had become really siloed in my thinking. One of the perils and, and you know, joys also of going through really, really um, high pressure, prestigious academic work is my whole world had become the Nobel Prize winning um, atomic and molecular and optical physical <laughs> specialists. And I made a conscious choice to leave academia, to move back home to New Zealand. And I then had to look around and find myself a job. And I had a massive crisis of confidence because I didn't understand what parts of my skill set were transferable. The reason I share that is because I think it's really common. And I think it's really common and will become more of a problem in this world that you and I have been talking about, where generative AI and other AI changes that will come are changing the world of work far faster than any of us are comfortable to keep up with. We're all going to have to become really good at inventorying our skills and figuring out how they translate to a new problem. I learned that really hard lesson in my early mid-20s by almost having a breakdown around, I've spent all these years doing this and what on earth am I going to do? How am I going to support my young and growing family? It was horrible at the time, but it's given me that perspective of saying, take your skills infantry and then understand how they can be transferred to work on a new problem. As I often say to myself, I've used this for 20 years and it's never, it's never let me down. Never die wondering. Never die wondering. Look for, look, look for the path that you're going to learn the most because you know the least about it at the moment. Kendra, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on Millions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. I've really enjoyed it. So there we have it. Kendra Vant, Executive General Manager of Data at Zero, reminding us to never lose our sense of curiosity and to never stop learning. Thank you so much to Kendra and, of course, to Mark. And on the subject of learning, take a listen to this. When I started, I was very sure that I was the smartest guy in the room, uh, which now I'm not at all sure of. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not in almost any room, in fact, now. That was Jed Doherty, the VP of Platform Strategy at DataIQ, the Paris-founded, New York-based platform for everyday AI. In the next episode of Millions, Mark asks him about DataIQ's journey from French startup to a unicorn organization working with most of the Fortune 500 companies. And most importantly, exactly what is everyday AI? Here is a sneak peek of Jed's vision for the near future. It's very feasible that in a couple years, you won't need to write any code at all. You won't need to even work with a visual tool. Instead, you're just going to say, type into a machine. Hey, given uh, all my Salesforce data, how would you uh, write letters to all of my prospects? There's no reason that that isn't a relatively soon to come case. So I definitely think the continued commoditization, we could think a, a few years ago, kind of everybody learning the tool of how to Google. I can very much imagine the, which frankly has drastically changed the way software development works, right? We can imagine machine learning becoming very similar, is, is learning how to pose a prompt to uh, a large language model, something like that, uh, and, and, and working off of that. It's another fascinating, informative, and inspiring episode of Millions. So join me for that. And in the meantime, keep up to date by subscribing and following Harrison AI on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs>